This is John Halsman, and welcome to the Community to the Foreign Policy blog on Monday. I am glad to be back at my desk after a crazy busy June where the four, I took four trips in the four weeks, despite all the travel chaos, where my bags were lost for a week, where strikes stopped me flying to Brussels, where strikes made me take a, a cab in the middle of the night to Charleroi, where baggage strike forced me to cancel another flight, and where I finally made it back to Milan, where there was predictably a taxi strike. So despite the entire world being against me, I managed to go to Bavaria this month, London, Amsterdam, and Brussels. And for all of those who I saw on these trips, it was so great to get out campaigning again, despite all the problems, to get to do my thing in political risk around the world. I'm a theater actor, and of course you need a theater audience, and it's been wonderful to be back out there with you all, and we will keep it coming. Two more trips coming in July. At the beginning of the month, um, we head off to London again, our favorite port of call where most of our clients are, by, by a smidgen. And then in, later in the month, I take my first holiday with Sarah in four years. We go to Ischia uh, around Naples, and I can't wait for having you know four days off where I will actually close shop, which we never do, but I'm taking the time off, and you guys will also get a break. <laughs> um, today, though, I wanted to talk, now that I'm sitting back at my desk, about something important, which is why the West leaders are unable to do anything in the face of everything going on. And I wrote a column to some extent opening this up in Arab News uh, over the weekend about the poison chalice that's been given to Emmanuel Macron, that he's, he's managed to just about win re-election, though he lost a majority, rather shockingly, in the parliamentary elections the past few weeks, but he's managed to win another term as president, but let's look at the political risks coming at this guy. He has no control really over the rate of inflation that's been ceded to the European Central Bank, and more importantly, to the Fed and other outside banks. So he has limited control over French rates of inflation, uh, though his spending money like a drunken sailor, as the French tend to do, isn't going to help, and the ruinously overly generous safety net isn't going to help, but he has no real control over the cost of living crisis, and yet he's going to be blamed for it. He has no real control over, if you're France, which is a great power in Europe, he has no real control over Ukraine. He can give slightly more weaponry, slightly less weaponry to what to uh, Zelensky, but bottom line, Vladimir Putin, uh, Zelensky, and how much the Americans are going to give, the Ukrainians are going to tell the tale. The United States is giving over well over half of all military aid to Ukraine. So although French, France matters, again, he's not going to tip the scale on this issue either. He can't make Germany suddenly become more Euro-Federalist and want to do more with France, which is, as a Gaullist, he sees as the only way for Europe to maintain its great power status, that Germany and France, great powers in Europe, though they are, are not great powers globally, only the EU is a great power globally. So making Europe have a actual defense policy, a more quick reacting foreign policy, which is the Gaullist dream, Macron is dependent on what kind of German leadership he gets. And with the ever skeptical and cautious Schultz, he's not going to get an awful lot of help here. So on the three biggest issues facing Macron right now, the cost of living inflation crisis being first for his people, secondly, the war in Ukraine, and thirdly, what happens within the European Union himself, Macron finds himself an important but bit player. 
So he is responsible for things of which he cannot control. And this is a tremendous problem for the West leadership, even if they wanted to be decisive. Unless you're a superpower like the United States or China, you really don't affect the international order globally in a fundamental way every single day. And yet you are blamed for things that are beyond your control. But there's a whole nother level that has to be added to why the West leadership is proving so feeble and so unable to meet the great challenges that confront us today. And that's simply that they're all economically, ba or they're economically basket cases because politically they're basket cases. If you go around the horn of the G7 and look at the major powers right now, you see unending amounts of political dysfunction. And so let's do that. If you start in the United States, you see Joe Biden with an approval rating of below 40%. It's at about 39% in Real Clear Politics' most recent poll of polls. And as I've said before, the reason that political types like myself from D.C. check the opinion polling daily, you know, the same way I look religiously at baseball scores, is because if the president's approval rating is over 60%, he can pretty much tell Congress what he wants to do, and they'll do it. And if it's below 40%, he's squelching rumors that he's dead. He is utterly peripheral to what's going on. And a weak president, honor doesn't befit a dying king, to quote Shakespeare, meaning that a weak leader isn't taken seriously. And Biden is right on the edge of relevance at 39%. Uh, he can't control the cost of living crisis at the moment. Again, that's the responsibility of his Treasury Secretary, the hapless Janet Yellen, who admits she let the inflation genie out of the bottle, along with the hapless Federal Reserve. Far more than Biden, they're going to tell the tale of what happens economically. He has no control over social issues, be it woke local communities enraging the rest of us by telling eight-year-old white kids they're somehow oppressors while not teaching the eight-year-old white kid how to read or do math. Teachers unions who want to stay forever in lockdown because they like box sets and managing parents teaching their children is not something, it's a local issue the president has precious little control over. And then worse, he puts his foot in his mouth and says how great the teachers unions are when everyone realizes they're the villain of the COVID piece. The kids have fallen way behind and teachers don't mind much as long as they can stay home. And this isn't going to wash, but he has limited control there. And then on social issues like Roe v. Wade, where the Supreme Court made its monumental ruling over the weekend, six to three to strike down Roe v. Wade, again, that Biden has very limited control over what the court does. And as a result, he has to watch as a bystander here. So he's part of this process of being held responsible for things that he has limited control over. Now, Biden's spending money, as I mentioned with Macron, like a drunken sailor, as Larry Summers has pointed out, is a major reason of inflation. And ironically, on the one area he does have some say, the country's holding him accountable for absolutely analytically getting it wrong, throwing gasoline on a roaring fire, and then saying inflation was going to be transitory. This was a self-owned mistake. This is an own goal that is entirely Biden's fault, and he will pay dearly for it. But there are limits to what he can do, and yet there are no limits to what the president is blamed for. Like a quarterback of a football team, he gets credit if the team wins, no matter how badly he plays, and he gets the blame no matter how well he plays. In the case of Biden, he's been playing terribly and the team's been losing terribly, but those aren't necessarily causal in every respect. Again, there are limits to what he can do. But given this 39% approval rating, even if Biden wanted to do something dramatic and could do something dramatic 
to stop the cost of living crisis, and he couldn't. But if he could, he simply doesn't have the wherewithal to do it. Let's remember the presidents who get things done tend to have a positive approval rating. You look at Ronald Reagan throughout the last, say, six years of his term. You look at Franklin Roosevelt throughout winning an unprecedented four elections. The reason Roosevelt could move an isolationist country toward actually helping Great Britain, one of his brilliant accomplishments, could lead the country through depression decisively and then lead it through the Second World War to preeminence globally, was that Roosevelt had an overwhelmingly positive approval rating and huge advantages in Congress in both houses. This freed him up to take tough decisions, to make decisions that were unpopular, such as helping the British at the time, which was strategically the absolutely seminally correct thing to do, but would not have had a majority in the United States up until Pearl Harbor. Yet Roosevelt could do that because across the board, he was still seen as a formidable campaigner, capable of winning for very significant election victories, the first two in overwhelming fashion. Likewise, Lyndon Johnson, after the assassination of Kennedy and his own adroit political moves, received an overwhelming mandate in 1964. Now, he misused this in Vietnam and managed to scupper his great society, but he could swing for the fences because he knew, knew he had su substantial congressional majorities. It's only when you have these majorities, as FDR did, as Johnson did, and as Reagan did, that you can really, in a domestic way, even more than in foreign policy, swing for the fences. And so even if these leaders wanted to do something, they couldn't because their basket case is politically. I've just pointed out why Biden is. Likewise, Boris Johnson, fatally wounded, in my view, over Partygate, loses 148 of his own backbenchers vote against him in a leadership election, which is a majority when you consider that over 130 to 40 members of the Tory party are on the payroll. They're members of, of the cabinet or their parliamentary private secretaries, or they have some sort of affiliation to Johnson. The vast majority of back ventures voted against him, and there's a death watch out. It's only a matter of time until Johnson's called. The tremendous loss in these two by-elections in Devon, in the, in the South, which was a 24,000-seat Tory majority, overwhelmingly Tory seat that had never voted anything but Tory as a seat. And in the new blue wall in the North, um, sorry, the new red wall in the North, where the Labor Party used to run things in Johnson through his populism has done well, to lose in Yorkshire and to lose in Devon is both wings of the coalition. And Johnson is on a death watch. He's somehow five or six points behind Keir Starmer, this overwhelming loss of the by-elections, their parliamentary privilege um, investigations into whether he lied. Of course he did, but it's very hard to prove someone's intent. So he'll be wounded and this will drag on, drip, drip, drip. But Johnson is in no position to enact anything bold. He's dead man walking, desperate to appease the Tory backbenchers to keep himself in power for another week, even though the 1922 club is about to have elections, backbench elections, where I imagine... Johnson's foes will win a majority and then change the time to vote for his premiership, but he's on the death watch, so he can't do anything. Likewise, Macron, having lost a majority in the French parliament, is going to have to go issue by issue and case by case to this new fractious governing coalition. He will be in de facto coalition, though not formally, with the Republicans, the old Gaullist party, which made a slight comeback winning over 60 seats in the new French parliamentary election. But they want to be distanced from the very unpopular Macron. So they'll work with him on his flagship reform 
of getting the retirement age up from 62 to 65, which is only the cornerstone of sanity, considering we now live to be over 80. Somebody's got to pay, even in France, for these extra 15 years of life. Nobody wants to discuss this. They continue to want to give everyone free ice cream. And you simply can't do that anymore. And this debt rate in France, on top of all this, is a time bomb waiting to explode. Haplessly now, Macron is dependent on the Republicans for support. How long will they give that on this fundamental reform that proves that France is at least moderately serious about macroeconomics in the new era when there are likely to be street protests? In fact, there will be street protests. And how long will the Republicans go along with this unpopular policy in the face of these protests. Macron is dependent on them and the street for enacting the one reform he can do that will actually help make France a modern country. So again, his political weakness <coughs> is telling. Likewise, Chancellor Schultz um, has been nobbled in North Rhine-Westphalia, the most important state in Germany, the most important of the launder, the industrial powerhouse, long an Espede stronghold, <coughs> and he's lost there. His popularity rating is in the low 40s as the CDU under Merits is resurgent. The Greens in his own coalition are resurgent. Everyone is attacking him for promising bold moves on German foreign policy and then dragging his feet, kicking and screaming to do that. But the loss of the election in Schleswig-Holstein and in North Rhine-Westphalia show that here is a very, very weak and very, very unpopular leader, unlikely to do much of anything to rock the boat where he's far less popular than the much more resurgent Greens of Robert Habeck within his own coalition. So again, the economic powerhouse of Europe can't do very much. In Italy, things as ever are even worse. There's no structure, whatever. In Italy, that's why we talk all the time about personalities. The great advantage that Anglo-Saxons have is that they can survive any number of mediocre presidents. Look at the 19th century, where I'm the only one who can name them all or prime ministers in the UK, because it doesn't matter. The machinery of government continues to work at a high level. There is a structure. There are institutions. In Italy, there's none of this. You're reliant on the personality of one man. When I go and shovel the walk here in Milan, I worry that Mario Draghi might slip, hit his head, and then we're down to the clown car. Then we're down to Salvini and Maloney and whoever's running the PD and the splitting five-star movement and Conti's pro, shamelessly pro-Chinese position and the hapless DeMaio, a bunch of clowns, none of whom are fit to run a gas station to serve as my intern. And so we're dependent on the good health of Mario Draghi. That's not a good way to run a country. It's certainly bad for political risk. And so Italy's no answer either. Neither is Spain, where Prime Minister Sanchez just lost the election in Andalusia, which is a socialist stronghold and amounts to 20% of the population as he deals with the People's Party's resurgence under Freyhus, the new leader, and the resurgence and growth of the far-right Vox. Both of these things have made him look very much running a minority government already in coalition with the far-left Podemos. He's unable to do anything very dominant either, as his days are numbered. So in Spain, and in Italy, and in France, and in the UK, and in the US, five of the countries here in the G7 are nobbled absolutely nobbled politically, and so they couldn't do anything decisive, painful, brave, and necessary to right the economic ship, even if they wanted to. And this is the, where po the domestic politics that we leave out of foreign policy 
far too much where the rubber hits the road. It means that we have leaders who are leaders in title, but can't do much of anything. We have Biden awaiting the onslaught of the midterms where minimally our firm predicts, and remember, we got the last election right down to the senator. We got the Senate at 50-50. This time our call is in the House. The Democrats will be lucky if they lose only 30 seats. Despite the heavily gerrymandered nature of the House, they're going to lose 30 seats and there will be a decisive turn to the Republican Party dominating the House. Even in the Senate, where most of the seats and a third of the Senate seats are up every time, this time favors the Democrats defending seats that are favorable to President Biden's victory last time in 2020. In 2022, you're going to see our account has at the moment the Democrats somehow losing two seats and the Republicans then having a 52-48 seat advantage. And with Biden at 39%, falling off his bicycle, unable to sit through a press conference from the ridiculously pro-leftist mainstream media. I've never met a mainstream journalist outside of particular niche uh, publications who ever voted for a Republican, and they won't even do a press conference with them because Biden's likely to screw it up. And so there are open doubts as to whether Biden can serve another term, which would make him 86 at the end of the next term. We don't want President von Hindenburg in charge of the Weimar Republic. And so I think it's unlikely Biden runs again. So you have all kinds of leadership succession problems with the Democrats. You have Schultz looking down his neck at the resurgent Greens and his own coalition, who are more popular than he is, being castigated time and time again for not moving decisively enough to update German foreign policy after the somnambulant two decades of the Stanley Baldwin Neville Chamberlain of German politics, Angela Merkel, who left Germany having outsourced its strategic policy to America, its energy policy to Russia, and its trade policy to China, all under her sleepy reign, a leader who, to put it mildly, history is going to judge far more harshly than Ian Bremmer and the rest of the people who are always wrong in my profession have. It's good to be right in Republican government. And boy, these guys are predictably wrong by seeing Merkel as some sort of great statesman, when in reality, she's the problem. On whether the issue be energy, trade, or strategy in Germany, she's the problem. But Schultz has no answers either. We see Sanchez and Johnson and Draghi living on borrowed time. Really, how, does it matter how long Draghi's in power when what follows him are back to the clown cars? The problem is the political dysfunction of the parties. And you can parachute in a competent technocrat every once in a while, but this is no answer in a modern Republican form of government. That's not Draghi's fault. That's a structural problem. We have France, where the chastened, arrogant, formerly Jupiterian Macron is now dependent on the Gaullist party, the Republicans, to get anything done. Let's see how long that alliance holds when the street erupts over his totally sane effort to raise the retirement age just slightly to 65. When we live to 80, do the French really think you get to retire at 14? Evidently, they do, but this is an economic crisis waiting to happen. And we have Boris Johnson at the tender mercies of both wings of the Tory party as he's dead man walking over the next year and the death watch has begun. All of this is to say that even if the West leaders wanted to be bold on macroeconomic matters as FDR was, or foreign policy matters as FDR was again, as was Reagan, he can't. He can't do brave, unpopular things that then are proven right, as FDR did by linking America to Britain 
the one that was urged not to by a largely isolationist country at the time. He brilliantly navigated that because he had the popularity to do so. Or Reagan with Paul Volcker heroically slayed the beast of inflation for two generations. Only the idiots now have awoken it. And they could do so because Reagan was willing to take the hit in his popularity, counting on it to bounce back, which it brilliantly did. But this only worked because he'd won a decisive victory, one forgets, over Jimmy Carter in 1980. Only with political mandates can you do anything. And right now in Germany, Italy, France, the UK, and the US, there are no mandates. Instead, we have very weak leaders trying to survive the morning rather than get anything done. And this at base for a Patrick Henry podcast is why the West is so weak and so hapless in policy terms, because the politics make it impossible for the leadership to do anything, even if they knew what to do and even if they wanted to. I'm glad to get this one out here, a big pitch, big think thing I've been thinking about while I've been traveling, uh, which helps explain why we're in the mess we're in and gives us a possible way out of it, which is to pick people decisively politically moving ahead. For all those who enjoy this, please do subscribe. Again, our subscription rates are off the charts. Um, we think the war in Ukraine has a lot to do with this, but we think this is a teachable moment. We're in our new era, the new age of insecurity. Everybody knows political risk matters, and we're here to give you the best call record in the business, over 80% correct. We're here to give you that and get things right and look at this fascinating new world and help businesses and government have an immense advantage in seeing the new world as it actually is and then striving to make it better. So those of you who haven't subscribed, please do subscribe. And for those of you who have, please do give. We're asking only the price of the espresso I'm about to down happily back at my desk, which is $70 a year or $7 a month for just $70 a year. We'll give you the foreign policy blog on Monday. Uh, we're going through albums you have to listen to before you die in the culture section on Tuesday. Tomorrow we have a look at maybe the greatest album of all time, Brian Wilson's Pet Sounds. On Wednesday we have the flagship Around the World in 20 Minutes, where I look at the political risk aspects of the world. Thursday my friend J.L. Ryder looks at the society. And Friday my friend Publius looks at the economics. For our little local newspaper to the world, we're only asking $70. Please do give and have a wonderful day. And I hope your espresso is half as good as mine. Thanks very much.